Welcome guys to the next edition of the Just In Time Sports Podcast, where in this episode we'll talk about the Last Dance documentary, Dak Prescott's contract negotiating with the Dallas Cowboys, the NBA's plan to return, and the impact what a possible lost season could have on the NCAA in terms of losing football. Now sit back and get ready to learn something. Alright guys, and we're back, and we're going to start off with the final two episodes of The Last Dance, Michael Jordan Bulls documentary. Now these two episodes were the most succinct of the two episodes due to the fact that the furthest it bounced back was 97, and in regards to most of the discussion was about the last couple of playoff series in the final run. Episode 9 really centered around the war between the Indiana Pacers led by Reggie Miller and older Chris Mullen, coached by Larry Bird against those 98 Bulls and every game was won by the home team Uh, there were some big moments including Reggie with the push off against Michael Jordan coming around the screen and Mike almost making a double clutching three to put them up 3-1 and not even allow Indiana to tie at 2-2 there was battles there was war Michael Jordan said it himself that was probably the hardest series and the most physical series they played since the bad boy Pistons and you had guys like Steve Kerr and Bushelli and other people on the team that weren't around during the bad boy piston war. I mean, the only person that was there technically was Scottie Pippen because Dennis Robin himself was a bad boy piston. So you really didn't have those guys who went through the fire and the brimstone to become champions. They showed up when Michael Jordan was playing baseball and was riding the coattails and the bravado of the Chicago Bulls and what they had become under Michael Jordan's leadership and his play. And they hadn't went through the wars and the tribulations of the Bad Boy Pistons or the Celtics early in Michael Jordan's career. So the Indiana series was a wake-up call. And they had been through battles. Michael Jordan and Steve Kerr had fought and practiced, but Steve Kerr and Michael Jordan had an understanding and a respect level after that incident because Jordan realized Steve Kerr would stand up to him so he knew he could trust him. And that was a big point in the series. Michael Jordan began to feed Steve Kerr. Steve Kerr was hitting jumper after jumper and making great plays because Michael Jordan knew that Steve Kerr could go through the war with him and go through the fight with him. And that's something that he'd understood. And it really showed an appreciation for Michael Jordan when he respected his teammates. He rode Scott Burrell because he did not think Scott Burrell was living up to his potential. And he got into wars with Steve Kerr. He fought Will Purdue. They didn't show it, but... He fought Will Purdue. I mean, they had situations where Michael Jordan was cursing his teammates out, trying to motivate them, trying to get them angry, trying to get them ready to go for a series like Indiana. I mean, Indiana fought them. They had Reggie Miller. They had Mark Jackson. They had seven foot four Rick Smiths. They had an older Chris Mullen who was on his back legs, but he could still play. They had the Davis brothers. They had guys that would flat out physically beat you up. And then you had, you know, Reggie Miller, who was their scorer. And a great coach in Hall of Famer, Larry Bird. Their series was an absolute battle. That series was rough. It was physical. It came down to, in Reggie Miller's estimation, a jump ball between Michael Jordan and Rick Smith. That Rick Smith hit the wrong direction, and the Bulls came down and tied the game. Instead of Indiana possibly going up by five and really taking command over game seven and possibly going to the finals themselves to face the Jazz. But the Bulls survive. They hang on. They go to Game 7, which leads them into a very tough series with the Jazz. Carl Malone was a matchup problem. Dennis Rodman did his best, but Carl Malone is arguably 
the second or third greatest power forward to ever play the game behind Tim Duncan. And he gave Dennis Robin fits. John Stockton was a quick little point guard that Michael Jordan's point guards on the Bulls weren't great defenders. I think at that time it was Steve Kerr. So with Stockton darting in and out and Carmelo on the post, also they had other great players on the team. They gave them a battle, especially by that time, Dennis Robbins wearing down. Scottie Pippen by game six has a bad back. Steve Kerr and uh, the rest of the guys are real offensive scorers because it's Michael Jordan taking so many shots. You didn't need a lot of offensive weaponry. You needed guys to play their role and be a star in their role. And that was something that the team was wearing down by the end of 98. But a couple of interesting notes I found out um, in the documentary. We so far have been portraying that Jerry Krause and Jerry Reinsdorf are to blame for the 98 team. And maybe ultimately they are. They're the blame for that team breaking up. But Reinsdorf himself and Phil Jackson confirmed went to Phil Jackson and offered him another year. Say, hey, bring it back. You can run it, try and run it back one more time. We'll give you another year as a coach. And we'll try and figure this thing out. But Phil declined. Phil said it was over. He wasn't going to be part of a rebuild. He was on top for too long. He wasn't going to be part of a rebuild. And when he left, Michael Jordan left as well. Um, I'm not sure Jordan knew about Phil being offered the extra year before the research for this documentary came out. Now, ultimately, Michael Jordan had to approve all the film and all the footage and the final cuts of anything before it went to air. But I wonder if he found out Phil was offered the last year before ultimately breaking up the team. They didn't show that. They've shown him, you know, reacting to people's interviews like when Gary Payton said he warmed down and Michael laughed or when Isaiah Thomas was giving his explanation for the walkout. We'd seen Jordan's reaction to those things. But we didn't get to see an opportunity for him to see his reaction to Phil Jackson being off of the year and declining. And this sparked a big debate. Would the Bulls have won 99? The answer is no. The answer is plain and simply no. There's no way they win in 99. Reinsdorf says that Jordan cut his finger on a cigar cutter messing around at a golf club, so he couldn't even play there anyway. Now Jordan's predictable and probably correct response was that he wouldn't have been messing around with the cigar cutter if he was preparing for NBA season because, I mean, I'm not sure if he had somebody cut his cigars for him or whatever the case may be, but he was in retirement Jordan mode. He wasn't in... Okay, I smoke my cigars anyway, but I have to still keep my body in shape to go play another season. Plus, that team was wearing down. Dennis Robin was on the fringes. We saw he leaves the Bulls and spins completely out of control. Scottie Pippen already has surgery on top of surgery. I know Jordan affirms that he could have convinced Scottie to sign a one-year deal to run it back in 99. But Scottie Pippen had a $50, $60 million deal on the table from the Houston Rockets. There was no way, after being so grossly underpaid during the championship run, he was going to sign a one-year deal, even if it was for $14 to $20 million. He wasn't going to take it, not with a guaranteed $50 million on the table from the Rockets, who were a good team and won the two championships that the Bulls did not while Jordan was out. You had Steve Kerr, who got a big offer. You have several guys on that team. That win made money. Like Ryan Doris said in the documentary, the market value for those guys became higher than the Bulls thought they were worth. And there was no way those guys were going to turn that money down for one more year. One more championship doesn't help anybody. One more championship doesn't help Scottie Pippen move up in a legacy. It doesn't help Steve Kerr become this top 50 greatest player. 
the only thing that that one ring would have definitively helped was Michael Jordan. Give him seven. Give him two away from Magic. The only people with seven would be him, Bill Russell, and the rest of that Celtics crew because Kareem had six. And it's a situation where one more year wouldn't have changed anyone's legacy. It wouldn't have fed anyone's family. But $50 million for Scottie Pippen did. Or the big contract that Steve Kerr got relative to his talent level because of his Bulls osmosis that he got in his next team as well. That Bulls team was challenged offensively. Very challenged offensively. I mean, that was look at the game six in the finals. Michael Jordan scores 45 and the whole team scores 87. I mean, that team was rough to score points. They could play defense from toughness and just will and championship desire, but that team was done. If Carl Malone by himself caused a matchup nightmares, Tim Duncan and David Robinson would average 30 and 20 apiece. There was nothing anybody could do with those two guys. And then you had the rest of the team wearing down and already the dysfunction of having to pull that group for another year. And then the next year, in 2000, Shaq shows up. Shaq and Kobe start getting the finals. That team was done. They left at the right time. A good portion of their mystique is could they have come back? Could they have won eight in a row? Jordan never retires. That's part of their mystique. That's part of their legacy. I think they left at the appropriate time. All in all, I think the documentary was great. It was amazing. I use the word documentary loosely because Michael Jordan had to approve everything. It wasn't like a third party came in, put it together, and then released it. Uh, Michael Jordan had to approve everything. Every single cut, every single angle, every single reaction, every single piece of footage. Jordan had to watch, approve before he ever saw the airwaves. And so I use the term documentary loosely. You've got guys like Horace Grant now very upset at how he was portrayed and some of the stories that have leaked out. Reports have it that Scottie Pippen's upset about how he was portrayed. And that is the negative about having the content subject be also the content controller in a phrase such as a documentary. Horace Grant stated that if anybody said anything negative about Michael Jordan, it was edited out. You didn't see any people have a negative opinion about him. You didn't see, oh, you know, they said the worst thing that they just said was Steve Kerr said he was a bully. And um, Bill Winnington said he wasn't always a nice guy. I mean, that was the worst thing that you saw from another person. Now, you could deduce what you want in your own opinions from what with the footage they were shown. But in terms of people offering their opinion, if it was a negative opinion, according to Horace Grant, they took it out. It wasn't in the documentary at all. And so, you know, we maybe not have gotten everything we wanted to see, different opinions we wanted to see. But all in all, I think it was a great 10 hours. I wanted 10 more. But all in all, I think it was an absolute great piece of film work and editing and design. It was great. It was perfectly put together. And up next, we're going to transition into the NFL and talk about Dak Prescott's ongoing negotiation and the latest reports coming out of their camp. All right, guys, we'll be back in a second. All righty, guys, and we're back again. Just like last week, I apologize for getting a little long-winded on the Last Dance documentary, but considering it was the last two episodes, I want to really wrap it up. And now we're going to transition to the NFL and to Dak Prescott's contract. 
Now the latest rumors coming out of it, based on the reporting from Chris Sims, is that if Dak Prescott were to agree on the fifth year that he does not want, it would take the Cowboys making that last year $45 million. Now I know that the sticker price is, oh my God, what in the world, $45 million. Let's start off with the fact that it's been refuted by Ian Rappaport, who stated that he got reports from both sides, Dak Camp and the Cowboy Camp, that they have never had an agreement or never had conversations on the number value or anything like that of a potential fifth year if he were to come. So there's no special negotiation of, I'll take your fifth year if you give me this. And with that being said, considering Rappaport is pretty plugged into all things NFL, I'm going to lean more Rappaport's side. He's gotten it from both sides that they didn't have those conversations. Maybe Chris Sims got it from an unreliable source. He's not an investigative reporter, but I would tend to believe in Rappaport reporting on this. Now, let's say that it's true. Let's say that Dak is demanding $45 million in the last year of the contract if they were to do the fifth year. Two things. One, he would never see the $45 million. If Jerry Jones agrees to pay Dak Prescott $45 million in the fifth year of a contract, he'll never see it. It'll be monopoly money. And I state this a lot. I've said in a couple of podcasts, NFL contracts are not guaranteed up until a certain point. So we may hear that somebody got five years, $100 million, but then I immediately look to how much it's guaranteed. So I don't care that the $175 million would make Dak Prescott the highest paid quarterback. That's irrelevant. What is relevant, however, is how much he gets when he signs his name, Rain Dakota Prescott, on the contract. If that's $100 million, if that's $110 million, that is the number that needs to be known. That will gauge how far Dak Prescott is pushing the leverage. How much leverage does he think he have? Considering the Cowboys have signed Andy Dalton this offseason, Andy Dalton did win 50 games in his first five years, so that'll give the Cowboys a little bit of breathing room and leverage back at Dak, stating that we don't need you. Um, We don't have Cooper Rush as your backup anymore. We have a viable NFL starter as your backup, and with a talented team, Andy Dalton could win the NFC East. But Dak Prescott's guaranteed number isn't known. And we're not even talking about the total guarantees, you know, the guarantees may be $120 million, but if 40 of them are connected to him being on the roster in the fourth and fifth year of the contract, then really the guarantees are not there because they would basically only guarantee the first three years. And having the situation and the contract structure that the NFL traditionally has, only having three year fully guarantees for the most part. So that's why a lot of times the deal maybe $100 million over five years with $60 million fully guaranteed. They're basically guaranteeing the first two and a half, three years, and after the third year, or depending on the cash flow, they may be able to cut or trade the player with little to no impact to the team's salary cap. But the second point of the $45 million in the fifth year is the look of the deals. So $35 million a year right now would equal basically Russell Wilson's contract. Dak Prescott is nowhere near the talent of Russell Wilson. The problem is Russell Wilson signed a while ago. His contract is outdated, especially for a quarterback at his level. Now, in four to five years, which this magical $45 million number is the kicker number, that's after the TV money has come in, that's after Deshaun Watson has gone over 40, that's if Lamar Jackson stays healthy, he's going over $40 million a year, 
and Patrick Mahomes probably starts off his contract at $45 million a year, give or take. So if you look at it that way, he won't be number one. He won't be number two. He won't even be number three in terms of annual value by the time that TV money kicks in and those next three guys in line resign. Now that's saying that's not even saying that Carson Wentz doesn't get a new deal from the Eagles or that Baker Mayfield doesn't click in Cleveland and they pay him as their franchise guy. Joe Burrow doesn't click in Cincinnati and they all of a sudden have to shell out a bunch of money to pay him. We don't know who's next on the landscape. Derek Goff can get it turned around in the Rams and have to pay him. I mean, Dak Prescott, $45 million can end up anywhere from 4th in the league to 10th in the league, depending on how the contract structures fall. So I think that the sticker shock number of, oh my God, $45 million a year shouldn't be as big of a wow number as it could have been maybe two years ago. Or even if the contract started off at $45 million under the current salary cap and the current CBA, then that would be a big shocker in terms of a number. But 45 years down the line, it won't be top five in my opinion. It probably will barely be top 10 considering so many young quarterbacks have to get repaid and those guys will ask for big money. So by the time he gets paid, we won't think about $45 million as a shocker. I mean, Russell Wilson's $35 million will be looked at as a cheap bargain. It will be looked at the same way that Drew Brees' and Tom Brady's $25 million a year from their, from their respective teams are looked at now as just a bargain deal for a great quarterback. $45 million will end up being the number that you'd want to be if you're a good quarterback. It'll be $45 million to $50 million a year in the back half of the years for a great quarterback. If I'm Jerry Jones and Dak Prescott's demanding that, I'll take it because he's never going to see the $45 million. Even if they renegotiate or restructure his salary, he'll never see it in terms of salary. Uh, they may work around bonuses and stuff like that, but it'll help Jerry Jones negotiate the cap if there's a big last year kicker that he could stress the bonus to and things of that nature because that fifth year is desperately important to him to get that bonus stretched out and that signing bonus so he doesn't have to pay all that money up front and he can stretch it out and reduce the cap hit. If I'm Dak Prescott, demanding that $45 million is smart in order to keep him together with the market that will bear out once the new CBA money kicks in. And so that is a smart demand. It is a rightful demand in order to keep Dak Prescott out of the free agency market because he wants a four-year deal in order to hit the free agent market as fast as possible which they, he wants Dallas to guarantee the first three years. So that way, that fourth year, they can be negotiating the whole season, similar to what they did last season, and to start working towards an actual five-year deal or longer. So that way, Dak Prescott's a cowboy for life. But if those guys agree on a fifth year being $45 million, I think it's positive on both sides. I don't understand the fan outrage outside of the sticker shock number. I think Dak Prescott is a top 10 quarterback in the league. Fringe, fringe top 10, maybe 11 or 12, but he's a good player and he's doing, he's free. That is the benefit of being a completely free agent. You can negotiate your own terms. You're bidding against you. You're bidding against history. And he has a duty to the rest of the NFL quarterbacks, especially those guys in his echelon or higher to push the contract as big as he can. He has a great agent in Todd France of CAA, and those guys are looking to get a great deal, and I think that he's doing the right thing.
Obviously, the Cowboys need to get this signed. Get him in camp. Get him in virtual workouts. Camps are starting to reopen. You've got Tom Brady in Tampa throwing to his guys, setting up workouts. And stuff like that is going to happen more often. And so the faster you can get Dak Prescott signed and back in the spirit and camaraderie of being a Cowboy, the better for the team. But the both sides need to get this situation done. And I think that it'll get done. It would be very odd to seeing the Cowboys trot out there in the first game with Andy Dalton under center. Although I guess it is possible, but I just don't think it'll happen. But now we're going to shift back to the NBA, just modern NBA. And we're going to touch on the NBA's plan to return and what we know so far from Adam Silver and the rest of the NBA power players. guys and we're back and now we're going to go to the nba's plan of return or at least the proposed plans or ideas we've heard so far from the nba and their camps about coming back and finishing the season now orlando slash walt disney world has emerged as the main site for a central location for games now it was rumored a long time that vegas would do it due to the fact of they have a relationship with las vegas due to the NBA Summer League and they have experience playing a lot of games in one location like the Thomas and Mack Center for instance where they do the Summer League games back to back to back to back so clearly it's equipped with multiple locker rooms and ability to get people in and out and stuff like that and it's ready to go for a multiple game situation but with ESPN having the worldwide sports complex at Walt Disney in Orlando and I think if they were going to return, especially with some mild hope of fans in the building, I think that a place like having it in Florida is a good location for them. Uh, Florida has eased their stay-at-home orders as, as a lot of southern states. And you see that with Tom Brady having a throwing session at a local school in Tampa with his receivers. You see that Florida is really easing their restrictions. So if you want to have a plan where fans come in with one-fourth the capacity, skipping three seats and stuff like that, the best location would be to have it in Orlando in an area that is, they have multiple courts. So if you want to have multiple games going on at one time, they have multiple standard regulation courts that you can play on at Disney World in the worldwide complex that ESPN has. We have Adam Silver in the NBA stating that they're going to go into a nationwide testing with different places like LabCorp and some of these big giant brands uh, test people to make sure that they have maximum amount of testing possible so that way there's no rash of outbreaks of coronavirus through the league if they were to come back we have june 1st being the date that we're hearing for a drop dead date to have a plan of return now with june 1st and with a lot of the teams saying that they want six weeks so we're looking at maybe july 15th being the return of the NBA, um, Adam Silver has already said that there's no definitive date to end it. There's no repercussions to next season. They'll push next season back as far as they have to, which gives me credence and gives me hope that they're going to bring the season back, not having a drop dead date where if it's July 15th and we're not playing basketball, the season's over. States that they're willing to push it back and start starting the NBA season and Christmas, which I think they should do anyway. You don't compete with the NFL, but before for a month, you compete with college football for a couple of weeks, and then you're scot-free and clear with you and baseball being the only thing on TV. And then you can turn, let's say, the summer league into the fall league. You have guys that they can go to the G League. Maybe you keep the G League at their current space since they're not a TV revenue 
fire anyway. I mean, those games were on YouTube in Maine and different places like that and Fort Wayne and stuff like that. So maybe you can have prospects that want to stay in shape or want to stay in NBA level go to the G League. Get rid of the combine. Just get rid of it entirely. You have guys go to the G League and learn how to play NBA basketball there. You know they're going to be running NBA systems. You've got scouts that can come to every game. Use a proven training ground for players like that. You've got Zion instead of you know going straight from the NCAA tournament to the next time we see him is in Vegas. Maybe he goes from the NCAA tournament to playing in Fort Wayne, playing in Maine, to playing for the South Bay Lakers even, and bring attention to the G League. Now that top prospects are going there, they can play there, skip the combine of sorts, and then go to the NBA draft that way. And that way you can keep the NBA starting around Christmas, maybe even first of the year, or maybe even having it all in one year. Sometimes travel can be a pain, especially traveling through those winter months. Let's say you're going from South Beach, Miami to Toronto. Now you're not freezing because even though you may have an early season contest versus Toronto, the ice is starting to thaw around March, which you've only played two months of your season. So you've still got three, four months of your regular season, and then you finish the NBA Finals somewhere in the summer, which you play in the summer anyway, you play in June, but now let's say the Finals are in early August. You get it wrapped up right before the NFL gets started and college football gets started, and you dominate the ratings. You absolutely dominate the ratings. Now, I'm not sure what they would do with the WNBA schedule. They tend to want to link those two together. You tend to want to have the NBA Finals and the playoffs kind of overlap the start of the WNBA season. But the WNBA season is uniquely linked to overseas basketball because a lot of the WNBA players, I would guess 90% of them, especially the stars, play overseas during the WNBA's offseason. During their overseas offseason, they're in the WNBA. So maybe you format the season where they get more money for more TV exposure. Maybe they don't have to go overseas now, so you can adjust their schedule. But all in all, I think the NBA will come back. There's been too many plans now. We have two possible locations in Vegas and Orlando. We have Adam Silver saying there's no drop dead date. We have players wanting money. Because if this season does not happen, the CBA will get ripped apart. The salary cap will absolutely tank. We will see the max contract just completely fall. Instead of the super max being $240 million in certain cases, it might end up $160, Um, Luxury tax bills will go through the roof. So that means teams like the Lakers and the Clippers, who really going to have to depend on one-year minimum deals, guys who are young players. Now, those guys all of a sudden... Instead of playing for maybe your minimum deal is $4 million and the new CBA is two. So why would I go play for $1.5 million, $1 million at the chance of a ring? Why well, can go make real money elsewhere? I mean, Anthony Davis, for instance, he is in a situation where he goes to free agency this offseason. Well, if there's no season and the CBA bottoms completely out and we have to reset the salary cap, his contract comes from $220 million to maybe $140, $150. Does he just sign a one-year deal to hope the CBA comes back up? I mean, there's many different ramifications to the season not being finished. And because of that, and there's too many power players that want it. All the big-time players are saying that they're in the play. Even guys like Jared Dudley are saying that you have to think of the bigger picture about wanting to play. Adam Silver seems adamant that he wants to play. He's already said one virus won't shut down the league. And with situations like that, I mean, you just have to believe that they're going to finish the season. I think that... 
if you have a LeBron holding up the championship or Giannis winning his first or another big name winning their first or maybe continuing their legacy in terms of championships, it'll be a season where people won't tarnish the legacy of this season. I mean, nobody thinks about 99 being a strike shortened season or when LeBron wins his first ring against the Thunder, that was also a strike shortened season. So nobody ever thinks about that often. And I know coronavirus is a different case because it paused the season and then rebooted. It. But it's not going to be remembered in 40 years as, remember when, you know, they had to pause the season? I mean, is it a real championship? No one's going to think like that. No one discredits Tim Duncan's first or LeBron's first because it was shorter seasons. So with that being said, I think the NBA will come back. And up next, we will talk and touch about the impact of a lost football season on the NCAA. All right, guys, and we're back for our last segment of this episode, where we'll be talking about the impact of a lost season on the NCAA. Now, I do think football is coming back. There's no reason at this present time to suggest football will not be played. Maybe a couple of states are a little hesitant or a little slow to the party. Um, I thought one of those states would be California, and then their governor did a complete 180 and allowed the NBA to reopen their facilities. So maybe, and in fact, that all the governors do uh, release their stay-at-home orders in time for a good and legitimate football season. But the economic impact on the NCAA would be devastating. It'd be crippling. It would end the NCAA as we know it. It would be about a $4 billion loss, according to an article that I read on ESPN. Now, the NCAA already had to extend their line of credit and to overextend themselves pretty far with the loss of the $1 billion estimated revenue they were going to get from the men and women NCAA basketball tournament. That's not counting what they got from baseball and other sports that have their end of the season tournaments that makes the NCAA money. But just due to the $1 billion loss that they suffered through the basketball tournament, they had to extend the line of credit and seriously threaten the NCAA stability. Now, a loss four times that, also not even recouping the original $1 billion, so you'd lose $5 billion in a year, the NCAA would be over. Uh, it would be a situation where we hear about the Power Five conferences maybe making their own governing body. And that would have to be the way it would go because the NCAA can't afford to extend their credit even further to sustain another $4 billion loss of direct revenue they were counting on from a lost football season. Along with the fact that a lot of universities would fold. A lot of athletic departments depend on football revenue, depend on football revenue shares to keep the rest of their sports on campus going, to keep their school going in some cases. And not having football would cripple states' economies. If you look at it in terms of the NFL, that is a multi-billion dollar a year business. So much so that every owner gets a $250 million check before the season even begins for their half of the media and stuff like that revenue. So that would cripple several states' economies. It would absolutely cripple owners. Mark Davis of the Las Vegas Raiders, his net worth is almost solely tied to the Las Vegas Raiders. He's not like Stan Kroenke, who has different teams around the world and is a billionaire. Or Jerry Jones, who's a very, very rich man and can sustain maybe a year loss and still survive and not have to worry about where his money and finances will come from and being bankrupt. Guys like Davis, who owns the Raiders, would be struggling. 
in terms of their finances because their net worth, like I said, is almost exclusively tied to the team. And then if you look at it from a collegiate standpoint, Louisiana depends on LSU football revenue. Um, Florida depends on the U and Florida State and other schools in their state for their revenue. California depends on USC and UCLA to bring revenue in, to bring tourism in, to support their economies. And so not having football is too big of a risk. I think that people will force the football season to happen if it is at all possible. Safety obviously is number one. Safety is obviously key. And doing this thing correctly where we don't have a massive outbreak of coronavirus later in the year is the main point and the main goal. But having a football season is 1A. If safety is 1, football is 1A. Uh, it might even be flipped in some people's eyes. So I think we will have a football season due to the economic impact it will have on states and the NCAA as a whole. But that wraps up this episode. I hope you guys learned something. I hope you guys are really enjoying this podcast. We're, you know, seven weeks into this thing. So I hope you guys are enjoying it. Uh, I'm open to topic suggestions. And, you know, tell your friends about us. Enjoy us. Like us. Subscribe us. Listen to us a couple of times if you missed anything. Uh, follow the Twitter at JTime Sports. I repeat, at JTime Sports for breaking news updates and updates on the podcast in general. And I hope you guys have a great rest of your day.